to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Good afternoon. Welcome back to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, on iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, oh, the heck with it. You know what we're going to say next. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie. And today, once again, the vivacious, the intellectual, and so loving Karen Watson is co-hosting <laughs> with us today. Good afternoon, Karen. It's Friday. Yay. Yay. And it's almost 4th of July. Yay. Yeah, my mom's birthday is 4th of July. Special shout out to my mom. Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, but we always tell the story in my family because her parents were uh, legal immigrants from Italy. Uh, they came over on two separate uh, occasions. My grandmother actually came as a tourist and got stuck here during World War One. My grandfather emigrated here when he was a young lad. And uh, since they were 100% Italian and American citizens, uh, they started their family and the first child was a boy he looked italian second child was a boy he looked italian the third child was a girl she looked irish so she had to be born on the fourth of july because <laughs> she looks so totally american <laughs> oh man even down to her freckles karen even down to her freckles oh man we got ourselves some great guests today on the first half of the show karen we've got uh dr lee bokum he's got a book out the immutable laws of living and when i looked at the title i said oh my goodness this is going to be these feel good you know uh, i i put the book aside and i finally started to read it i got so enwrapped in the book and it wasn't anything like i thought it would be the title is so deceiving but it's a great book. We're going to be talking to him about that. And Karen, this is right up your alley, you know, personal responsibility, moving forward. This is what you and Burgess and I were talking about on Tuesday. Everything is in his book. The second one, I think we're going to have a little bit more fun with uh, because he's from Harvard. Uh, Richard Sander, he wrote a book out, Moving Towards Integration, uh, dealing with the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So uh, going to be a very interesting show uh, leading up to the 4th of July weekend. So that said, anyone that listens to the show know we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going out to another fellow law enforcement officer, Deputy Sheriff Jacob M. Pickett of Boone County Sheriff's Office. His end of watch was Friday, March 2nd of 2018. 
And this is from several sources, the first being the Officer Dan Memorial page, which you can find at odmp.org, fox59.com also. And it begins, Deputy Sheriff Jake Pickup succumbed to a gunshot wound sustained while attempting to apprehend a wanted subject. The man had fled from Lebanon police officers who had gone to his home to serve a warrant on a different person. The officers recognized the man as also having warrants, but he fled in a vehicle with two other people. When the officers tried to take him into custody, Deputy Pickett, a canine handler, joined the pursuit until it came to a stop on Indian Spring Road. The wanted man fled on foot with Deputy Pickett and his canine in pursuit. Deputy Pickett was shot in the head as he rounded the corner of a building. The subject was shot and wounded by another officer before being taken into custody. The second subject continued to flee in the vehicle, but was taken into custody following another pursuit that ended on I-65. Deputy Pickett was transported to Witham Hospital before being flown to St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis, where he succumbed to his injuries. He was kept on life support until the evening of March 4th of 2018, so that his organs could be donated. Served in the Boone County Sheriff's Office in Indiana, Indianapolis for three years. He had previously served with the Tipping County Sheriff's Office for two years and the Marion County Sheriff's Office for three He survived by his wife, two children, parents, sister, and a niece. From Fox 59, community gathers for prayer services. Deputy Pickett has been taken off life support, the Boone County Sheriff's Office confirmed. Boone County Sheriff Mike Nielsen informed mourners Sunday night during prayer service at Freedom Church in Lebanon that Pickett would be taken off life support. The organ team at St. Vincent removed his organs around 9 p.m. A patient at St. Vincent will receive his heart, officials said. The sheriff's office posted a photo of the fallen deputy on Facebook with the following message. Jake is with his savior. You will be missed by so many, but will will live through all of us. Carry on, Dick B.D. Pickett. We will take it from here. And from Romans 14, 8, we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And from John fifteen thirteen, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. In prayer, signed Sheriff Mike Nielsen and staff. And finally, during visitation for Boone County Deputy Sheriff Jacob Pickett, a letter from the U.S. Attorney General, Attorney General Jeff Sessin was read proclaiming the slain officer a true hero. Pickett was fatally wounded while chasing a man police said was fleeing in Lebanon. Investigators said Anthony Baumgarten, 21, shot Pickett in the head so the deputy and his canine partner, Brick, rounded the corner of an apartment building in the city's north side. Baumgart told reporters before his initial court re- appearance that he shot Pickett because he didn't want to be bitten by the dog, and he had no remorse, special kind of person to work in law enforcement, read a letter from Sessions, shared by U.S. Attorney for Southern Indiana, Josh Minkler. I'm told Jake was exactly that, a remarkable man, a dedicated husband and father, and an outstanding public servant, 
throughout his career in law enforcement, most recently with the Boone County Sheriff's Department. Pickett joined BCSO three years ago after a career that began in Marion County and Tipton County law enforcement. He leaves behind a widow and two small boys. Deputy Jacob Pickett courageously, courageously shared his post, representing what is best in society, going into places that the average person fears to tread, seeing things that no one wants to see, said Sheriff Mike Nielsen, reading from a prop- proclamation before the Pickett family was presented with an American flag. These sentiments were echoed outside the Crown Hill funeral home by Mark Cohen of Oath Keepers, who drove down from Allen County to erect more than a dozen flags honoring Deputy Pickett. It hurts to lose an officer, Cowan said. Anyone who gave an oath to protect the Constitution and the people, and every one of these officers gave an oath, and Officer Pickett kept his oath to the very end. They mean a lot to us. Anyone who will go in where angels fear to tread, they rush in when everybody else is rushing out. Cynthia Wisenreed knows the pain. Her husband was Indiana State Trooper Andrew Wisenreed, who was killed on I-71, assisting a motorist in 1997. We come alongside of the families because of the fact that we know what they are going through. We know that there is a hole in the heart that they've lost. Wisenreed said. She is president of Concerns for Police Survivors, COPS. I think you sign up for this because you have a heart for it, because it's law enforcement. They're out there. They're trying to protect everyone. Pickett's partner, Brick, a brown and black German shepherd, a Belgian Melnois, has been ever-present since the shooting, a guided through a bewildering week by Deputy Pickett's friends. We first started noticing it when we got him. He wasn't eating as much, said Lebanon patrol women, Taylor Nielsen. They go through the same process we do, and it's going to take him some time to get over it. So he's finally going back to eating full meals and a lot more positive, playful demeanor. Nielsen said it would be an honor to take care of Brooke until he is retired to live with the Pickett family. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Pickett. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement officers, firefighters, emergency services. It also dedicates to the brave men and women out there who serve in our military from the birth of our nation through today and into the future. And we dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. God bless each and every one of them. Yeah. 
You're here listening to Sense Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star, Daily News, Kinetic Hi-Fi, The Fix FM, out of Charleston, South Carolina, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. You know I'm going to tell you. Just go to the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right. And we're back. Our guest host is Karen Watson. Karen, we're waiting for our guest to uh, show up and call in, and hopefully he will be doing that shortly. Um Meanwhile, there's so much that is going on. The big news is that Justice Kennedy has announced he will retire at the end of next month. This is something tremendous, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry, Karen. I muted you. Let me let me get back to that screen to unmute you. My bad. Just bear with me. I started opening up a whole mess of things here. <laughs> You're sitting there in the background patiently waiting. Usually I have to get to unmute myself. Normally not the guest. <laughs> Co-host. <laughs> oh, man. But this is tremendous news with uh, Kennedy stepping down. Right? I think it is wonderful news. I mean, I, I think, you know, it was Reagan that uh, – put Justice Kennedy there, and I, I, he has been there for a long time, and now I think we have an opportunity to return the court back to its original uh, reason for being. You know, the courts are not there to be partisan. They're there to make sure that things are abide by the Constitution, and hopefully and prayerfully, we'll get an actual um, justice there that will, that believes in the Constitution and supports it. So that would be wonderful. Yeah, it would be. And there's a lot of great names out there that that they're putting out there. He's got a list of um, 30 or 25 of them. And, you know, it's funny because the left is going so berserk. We don't even know who he's going to pick to put before for the nomination. We don't um, know who he's going to pick. I would, lo- I would love to see, uh, you know, Ted Cruz be on that list because I think Ted Cruz is a, he's, he's a good senator for our state. I think he, he believes in the Constitution and, you know, but I think I love him as a senator, but, you know, you never know. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We do have our guest in on the line, Dr. Lee Bocum. Did I pronounce your last name correctly, sir? You are very close. Bocum is fine. <laughs> okay. And you've got a, a great book at The Immutable Laws of Living. The instru- ins- I cannot talk today. No, jeez. <laughs> Inspirational Blueprint for Living Your Meaningful Life. And it's funny because you know, your agent had sent me the book, and I looked at the title, and I said, all right. 
oh, what is this that she's, she's pushing off on me? And I put it down and I'm like, all right, do I really want to read this book? And I put it aside. I put it aside. And I finally said, I sat down and I read it and I became enthralled. It's an entirely amusing book. It's witty. It's, it's informative. And I found that a lot of the things that you put in your book that someone like my co-host Karen and I already put into practice. It's a phenomenal yeah, book. Yeah, I'm so glad you follow some of the laws when most people find it. They're following some and breaking others. And so that's, that's really the point of the book is to figure out where you're getting stuck. And a lot of people will find that they are breaking every single uh, law that I talk about. In fact, I would say that one of the ways that I know about these laws is because I've done it myself. And then there are some people who say, yeah, yeah, I got this one, this one, and this one, but this one got me. Ah, oh, man, it is, it is really, truly amazing. Now, i got to admit, um, I had cataract surgery just this past Wednesday, so I fortunately wrote all my notes in uh, before I went in for the surgery, so I'm going from mostly from memory now. Uh, but um, you have a website and a podcast you do called Thriveology, which is what everything your book is basically on. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so thrivology, uh, you know, the ologies, your biology, you're studying by, you know, the, the world, bio world. And so thrivology is study, the study of thriving, but not just kind of on an academic level. I try to figure out how you can apply this. How can you work to make your life thriving? And so in each of the podcasts, I, I cover a wide array of things. Um, it, it's kind of looking around at, at my clients and my own life where I see people getting stuck and basically looking around saying, how do other people thrive in these areas? And so I do a lot of experimenting in my own life and also uh, work with clients on a regular basis. So I'll bring that to the podcast to help people find a, a really easy way of picking that up. Each, each podcast episode generally is about 20, 25 minutes, which is enough time to you know, take a walk or take a drive. Uh, and listen to the, the thing and, and, and get working on it. I try to make it as uh, practical and applicable as possible. It is. Um, it's a lot of things. Uh, you look at the people complaining. They always put themselves as a victim, and you talk about this in your book. And unfortunately, there are there's a segment of our political society that preys on victimhood, and they, they promote the idea of victimology. And this is what you address in the book. We are not victims. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I would say that uh, right now where we are um, in history, we have – it's not one part of the spectrum. It's, it's across the spectrum. People are saying, you know, I'm, I'm being taken advantage of or I'm, I'm losing out. And strangely, everybody feels like they have been dealt a bad hand. Uh, some people can feel like they, you know, at various times had a better hand or worse hand. But – I hear a lot of that. Uh, I think that the, the victim mentality is, really does go across the spectrum. It's really about people, about individuals. There are lots of people who feel like they're not victims but recognize that you know, bad things do happen to everybody, and we have to figure out how we're going to react to them. Um, but as, as I've watched it, um, it is. I mean, it, it's not just politics. It's sales. You know, sales is telling you you're a victim. You've got to buy this in order to win. And so uh, it's, it's kind of a part of our culture that we're, we're being taught and taking on the message that uh, we're the victims, and, and that leaves us stuck because then something out there has to make the difference rather than saying, what do I do? How do I change my life? 
But do you think that also the more secular we become as a culture, then the more victim there is? Because I do believe that in this world you will have tribulation. I mean, that's what the Bible says. But, you know, God says, you know, I have overcome the world. But when people who don't have a uh, a sense of of that, I think it's then then you can be hopeless. Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah. Yes. Um, I, so I, I do believe that many people their faith gives them that that place of meaning. So I absolutely agree with that part. When I look back though, um, the, you know, the victimhood stuff isn't new. Uh, I've watched country. I mean, if you look at the histories, countries have played that that card forever, and uh, people in the countries. And uh, you know, if, if really looking at the stories in the Bible, you know, there is that constant reminder of people who are like, "Oh my gosh, we've been done wrong. Uh, we've been treated unfairly." And the reminders through the Bible is God saying, "Hey, you know, you, it, this is on you. You step up. You are the one who are responsible to you know kind of follow my lead." And so I certainly think that faith can play a part in helping us find meaning. Uh, I'm just not sure that this is a problem that suddenly erupted in our culture. I think it's been here all along. And, and so this, the, when I talk about one of the immutable laws is that you are 100% responsible for your life, that's been true today, and it's been true forever. Uh, it's just that we, uh, we as individuals sometimes lose track of that. Well, you know, I this think is a character. <laughs> I, think I, I I don't think you are 100% responsible for your life. I think you, the way you the way you look at things, you may be responsible for, but uh, you know you can walk out and get hit by a Mack truck. You had nothing to do with that. I mean, I think that we can go from one end of the spectrum. I think there's. You can go from I'm a victimhood to I'm all powerful. Huh? Uh, Let's do a little defining. Uh, Because when I say you're 100% responsible, the word responsible is not the word blame. It's the word responsible, which means able to respond. I can choose how I respond. So if I go out and something happens to me, I still get to choose how I respond to that. I mean, uh, assuming I'm still alive, obviously at that point that changes. But no, people, uh, bad things are going to happen. You know, people are going to get sick. Uh, people are going to have accidents. Those are the external events. We don't have control over that entirely. We do have some. Um, years ago, I was a hospital chaplain. That's kind of where I started. And this was back in the days when you know the hospital would allow the patients to smoke in their rooms, which looking back, we would all go, what, what are you talking about? But I remember being called to this person's room who had been told that he had terminal lung cancer. And I walked in and was seeing the glow of that cigarette, even as he was taking in pure oxygen, which boggles my mind these days. I sat down beside him, and I said, uh, so, you know, they heard you want to talk to a chaplain. What can I help you with? And he took a few more drags, and he said, so why did God do this to me? And I said, tell me what you mean. He said, why did God give me lung cancer? And I said, can I ask you another question before I answer that? And he said, sure. I said, how long have you been doing that? And he said, oh, I started when I was 14. I've been smoking two, three packs a day almost my entire life. And I said, do you think that might have had something to do? Now, there are lots of people who smoke, and they don't end up with cancer, but this person wanted to say, I have nothing to do with that. 
Now, I'm not going to blame him for his cancer as much as to say we all have choices in life that can create our circumstances. And then there are some circumstances that come along over which we have no control. And at the point we are right now, and that's another one of the laws, that what is is what is. We start with where we are right now. Now I get to choose how am I going to respond to what's, what's come to my way in life. It's not that I caused it necessarily. I might have helped it along. But now I get a choice on what I'm going to do from here. So responsible has nothing to do with blame. You know, you just said something that's a mouthful because I have my stepson visiting us for a while. uh, And uh, we had gotten taken advantage of by a contractor. And part of it was my fault because I didn't do enough background check on the contractor before we hired him. And when I realized we were being taken advantage, I immediately severed all relations with the contractor. And at one point we had ordered some materials to be used and the contractor convinced me to return them. He can do a better job. And my stepson, I'm walking through the living room as I'm making dinner or whatever I was doing. And he started harping on, well, you should have, you should have, you should have. And I said, so what? It's, that's in the past. I know we should have. I already am aware of that, fully aware of that, and I'm yeah. kicking myself yeah. for it. The question is not what we should have done. The question is where do we go from here? How do we take that next exactly. step forward? And this is what I am doing to take the steps forward. So let's put the past behind us and just move only forward. And this is exactly what you wrote about in your book. And when I was reading, I'm going, oh, dang, I'm already ahead of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, accepting what is is a tough one because uh, we all want to redo the past. And the fact is that doesn't work. I mean, we don't. We live in this present moment, and so we can always choose. Yeah, based on what's happened back there and based on where we want things to go, we can make choices in our behavior we, we, over the things we have control over. And there really is it's a very limited thing because that's the other thing I talk about, that we need to control what we can control and not try to control the things we can't control. And, and so the, the moment in this moment, that's what we have a place to do that. Uh, what's happened has happened. We've, that, it's done. And uh, and so the other other danger of that for some people is they say, oh, you're just dismissing everything in the past. No. Um, I actually, uh, one of the fathers of uh, life coaching called it the present perfect. And what he said was this, per- this moment, this present moment is a perfect reflection of everything that's happened to you and that you've done up until now. So here's where you are. Now where do you want to go? And that changes the equation because so many people, you know, I spent my time as a therapist listening to people say I should have, I would have, I could have, and, and somebody else should have, would have, could have, and I wouldn't have to be here. And yet here we were. So the question then began to be, okay, now that we've processed that, we've grieved that, how do we now choose a different direction? You know, that's a very a lot of truth to that. The thing is also um, where you reach a certain point where – for example, this individual took advantage of our, our kind-heartedness, uh, to put it politely. Um, also, you talk about forgiveness, letting go. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm mm-hmm. fond of saying this because I had an interaction with some family members when my husband was critically ill, and they yelled at me, they cursed at me, how dare you? And I was extremely hurt, and I sat down with my pastor, and I cried, and um, I got my mom on the phone. I was crying with her and everything, and I walked away from all of that and says, I can forgive them, but I will not forget. So this is where we have the learning moment 
you've learned about yeah, what yeah. the other individuals, you've learned about the other situation. You can forgive them for their character faults and for what they've done to you, but you will not forget. So you don't that same mistake again. That's right. And, 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 you know, you hear that, that phrase kicked around so many times, forgive and forget. Um, my feeling is if you can actually forget, forget whatever happened, it probably wasn't worth forgiving anyway. I mean, it was that insignificant. We're always going to remember those hurts. And the question is how do we remember them? Do we allow that to capture us? The other thing that is true about, in fact, uh, you, we're on, now on a topic. My next book coming out, um, the ebook version comes out next month, is all about forgiveness. And the, the print uh, comes out next October. So it, it's such a big thing that I, I thought I have to really focus even more on that. So the next book is about that. There's the other piece, that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. I do a lot of work with couples, and I have to make that point repeatedly that you've got to choose to forgive. Then you might decide whether you want to reconcile with that other person, but the process is separate. The, the forgiveness is for the person who does the forgiving. It frees them up from that hurt, from the bondage of that. It allows them to step forward. And, and here's the, that's, that's the switch. You know, a lot of people tell me they can't forgive, and my response is, well, right now you won't forgive because we all can forgive when we choose to. We just misunderstood it. They, they think they're letting the other person off the hook. And so many times, you know, that person that they're holding on the hook has no idea they're even on the hook, and they don't even care, right? And so we have to find a way of releasing ourselves from that because then we find out that we were the ones that were on that hook. Now, uh, Karen, you probably could uh, delve into this a lot, too, um, but where people say it's not fair, I'm not getting my fair share. And this has to deal also with, you know, within our Constitution, the right to pursue happiness. You're not guaranteed happiness. Right. You are not guaranteed fairness in life. As a matter of fact, nothing is fair in life, but it's how you make the best of what you got. Yeah, in fact, that word happiness that, that our founding fathers used, it's not the word we use anyway. <laughs> we talk about pursuing happiness, and so many times I think people say, but don't I have the right to pursue happiness? And I'm like, if you want to be constitutional about it, sure. That means to be a good citizen doing your best in the world. That's what happiness meant from that time frame. It was not about going out and feeling good about everything just because you're you know, doing whatever you want. And so even, even saying pursuit of happiness, we've got to make sure we're defining happiness by the way they meant it. And you're right, it wasn't about achieving it. It was always about moving towards it, that we had the, the choice of doing that. I don't think happiness is a, has much to do with thriving anyway uh, because it's always external. You know, what makes you happy? When we use the term these days, happy is something comes to me. Happy and happen, they share a root word. So I'm going to be happy when I have the right job or happy when I have the right amount of money or happy when I have the right maid or happy when something else there finally comes to me. And when we look at the latest survey, 33% of Americans said they were happy. One-third, that means that two-thirds said they were not happy. Uh, so even if, if they think that they have a right to that, we're certainly not getting there because I think we're chasing the wrong thing. I think that life really is about finding a meaning and purpose. And, and so back to you know, what's God got to do with this, I believe we're here for a purpose, that God puts us here with a purpose in our lives, that we've got to figure that out. 
And when we figure that out, it doesn't matter about the fairness thing. Fairness is, is a child belief that was never true then and is certainly not true in adulthood. Um, and so instead of looking at how to be happy or how to get it fair, my real question is how do you find your purpose? How do you live out your purpose? Make things matter. Find meaning in that and make an impact in the world that, that makes the world a better place. I mean, we're going to make an impact, but can we make a positive well, impact? There's there's a debate going on in the chat room uh, over the forgiveness part that we were talking about, and there's one comment here that um, if you forgive the socialists, they will come and kill you. It's not so much forgiving them, but you also talk about in your book about having a closed mind. And this is where we're talking with our enemies will have a closed mind. We may forgive them for their faults, but we will not forget what they intend to do so we can then better arm ourselves. These are things that you talk about in your book. You know, don't be stupid about it, uh, but be aware that there are people out there that will forever have a closed mind. Yeah, there's a there's an old proverb uh, from the Middle East that says, um, uh, believe in God and tie up your camel. Right. And so their thing was that even though you might have beliefs in, in, in humans and, and trust in, in God and everything else, you still ought to take precautions. There's no reason to you know, leave everything up to chance. And so uh, forgiveness has nothing to do with that. I mean, you don't say, I forgive you here. Let me give you a weapon. Um, that has nothing to do with it. Forgiveness is not allowing yourself to fight a continual battle over something over which the other person doesn't even know they're participating. Forgiveness is about recognizing that you don't have to hold on to the hurt. The hurt is what gets us stuck. And what I've realized in this, let's talk about the, the kind of the political world. The problem is in this political climate, we no longer listen to anyone that's not telling us what we want to hear. And if we have had a wide range of beliefs this long, it tells me that everybody has something important to say. You may not agree with how they get there, but they might be pointing to something that we need to actually learn from. And so part of what happens when we get in such a defensive mode is we do close our minds off. We believe that we have the perspective, not a perspective. We believe that we see things just as they are. And unfortunately, science will tell us we are all limited in our views. We all have places where we're blind, and we need other people to help us understand a more full view. You don't have to change your belief, but we do have to listen to each other in order for us to find a better way forward. Well, in other words, that when we're listening, say, for example, that we had the Chinese that are threatening us with you know, attacks and you know, trade wars and everything else. We have to have the mind open to listen to what they are really saying to us so that we can better arm ourselves, better prepare ourselves in dealing with them is basically what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that, you know, when we use the, I know it comes out a lot, but kind of the arm ourselves, even in that is getting ready for a battle instead of saying, how do we make sure that we're not taken advantage of? And how do we make sure that we understand why that is happening, you know, in a broader perspective? The, the fact is that we all have limited views. And uh, and that's I mean we, we no way around that that's just the way you know if you go to a church and you at the same church listen to the same uh, preacher and reading the same Bible still have different views right among themselves and so we if we start learning from each other we can start broadening that up a little bit it may not change our view but it sure makes us able to see each other as fellow humans which is a whole lot better than 
you know, the other side that needs to be destroyed. I think, I think we're kind of stuck there. And until we move beyond that, um, my concern is that we are, we're not just doing our country a disservice, we're doing ourselves as individuals a disservice because then we stay in that defensive mode. Um, you know, we, we are um, in many ways stuck in this us-them mentality that keeps us from thriving. And that's what concerns me about that. Well, you know, I, I look at what our president is doing, and he's doing a lot of things that you write about in your book. And when I say arm, I don't mean physically pick up a weapon. What I mean is you have to be mentally uh, armed. You've got to be physically armed. You have to be diplomatically armed. You have to be economically armed. And however you deal with whatever the issues are or whatever the country is. And when you see him dealing one-on-one doing these bilateral treaties rather than these multi uh, country treaties. He's he's looking at the situation. He's saying, "All right, fine. I see where you're coming from. I see what your intent is. Now, this is how I'm going to deal with you, and I'm going to offer you various options, and let's see which one you want to take, so we can move forward." So basically, you're saying the same thing in your book, aren't you? Um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to p- compare uh, with how the president might do it because I don't know enough about how he is processing things. As much as to say that I do think that being able to say, okay, what's underneath this? You know, what's the the deeper level of this? What's really going on underneath is where we get away from the surface conflicts. So many times uh, a lot of the surface conflicts are so uh, dug in that people just can't hear from the other person. Um, they've uh, years ago had a program that would bring people from different perspectives together, and they would not allow them to name their perspective. And so for the first two days of the events, they only got to know each other as people. And then on the third day, they could talk about the, uh, where their beliefs came from. And, and at that point, they had already kind of had a, a place of saying, okay, we're, you know, we're fellow humans. Now let me see if I can understand why you see it that way. I don't have to agree. And this is one of the things that I, I teach couples every day. You can understand where somebody comes from without agreeing with what they're saying. But if you're not willing to even understand how they get there, communication is stuck. No movement goes forward. So if we can ask the question, how, you know, can you under, help me understand how you see it that way? Here's the thing that I've discovered. People don't need agreement. They need to feel understood. And so in, in our daily life, if we work on saying, okay, let me see if I can understand where they're coming from, I don't have to change my, my viewpoint but I get to understand how they would see it from that perspective, and that changes relationships, changes marriages, changes people's lives just because now they're not the enemy. Now there's somebody who can be understood. You still have to come up with where you're going to stand, right? But this is more about understanding, not agreeing. Okay. Karen, you got a question? Well, Did I lose my no, I was just thinking. I, no, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Oh, I can. Yeah. Okay, yeah, great. <laughs> I'm sorry, now I'm coughing, but <laughs> of course, but no, that's very interesting. I, but I think that works only under certain contexts. I mean, people can explain their belief systems, <clears throat> but they can still be way off. <clears throat> and then you think, well, if you can't agree, you know, I mean, I mean, if you asked Hitler, could he explain why he hated the Jews? He could have explained it, but it, I think when people want to agree or they want to be in a relationship, it 
I think there's a it just makes it it's it's a forerunner to to that. And I'm I'm not saying it's all hippy dippy, but I, I mean because uh, I think Lord knows we do need a lot more peace going on in this world. But I think sometimes when people when when you understand certain things and then people don't agree with you, then it's it's hard to move in sync with that. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, so where I move from is me saying, okay, let me understand this other person and see it differently. Let me understand where they're coming from. When when they've when I've asked them enough that I understand where they're coming from, I may it, it's likely for most of us it's not going to change how we view it, but it does change how we understand that person. Um, it creates empathy. You know, we, we suddenly have an insight into why this person is moving in that way, and then we get to the point in a political arena where we can say, okay, there is another perspective. Not necessarily that we have to move in that perspective, but we better understand it if we're going to move forward because you know, I, I don't think there's any research around that doesn't show that our country has become more and more divided over the past decade. And more and more divided over the past decade means that our country is becoming uh, much more um, tenuous in our connections as humans. And I just kind of believe that as a country, we, we need to say we're, we're in this together, and, and we can't do that until we understand how somebody could see things that way. Yeah, and, and by the way, there is, you know, when I'm working with couples, I remind them that that doesn't start with saying, how could you possibly see it that way? It really isn't out of curiosity. You've got to ask the question, can you help me understand how you get there? And at the end of that, I mean, I've sat with so many couples, and, and I've done this in so many businesses. At the end of it, when somebody feels like they've really been understood, they don't need agreement. They just need to be understood. And then the decision can be made. And so many times you can say, okay, I understand where you're coming from, and the other person feels understood, and we still have to move in this direction just because that's how we have to move. Those are independent. But until that person feels uh, understood, you're you're going to be tearing. You're going to be tearing at the fabric, whether it's a company or a couple or a country. You know, I do think, and I'm not positional to what you're saying, but I do think we are more divided today than we were in my than we were ten years ago. I mean, I see that and I experience that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're looking yeah, you for the data, a sip of water. I'm it. Huh? I know I do need some uh, sip of water. I know we're having all kinds You're of hurting me. allergy stuff going on in Dallas. <laughs> oh man, this, uh, Karen, you are a perfect you know, example because when uh, you came out as a conservative in the political arena, you took a hellacious hit, like many other people in your position, and no one wanted to listen to why you were saying what you were saying when you were saying it. And right. look what it happened now with uh, Sarah Huckabee at the Red Hen restaurant in, yeah. in Virginia there. You know, there's no willingness for people to sit down and listen to each other. And the civil discourse right. has just gone to the wayside, which is, I think, what uh, Dr. Lee is attempting to tell people. You've got to sit down and listen to every, each other. We've got to stop going at each other's throat, which Sarah Huckabee yeah. was a perfect you know, lady about that. She goes, well, I can understand where they're coming from. I'll respect their opinion. I'll walk away. But that's not what we're seeing in today's society from a vast portion of our population. Am I looking at this correctly? Right. 
That's right. And we're I mean, and I, I, I think we what we're lacking is grace. But I do think that there are certain times when we disagree, and if people do not agree, if someone just says, well, I disagree about the issue on slavery. Well, no. Slavery is an evil institution. We can't, some things we can't come to the mind on. It's something you can explain, and if people don't see it your way, it's a problem. You know, I can't say, well, I disagree about the Holocaust. No, it's not about disagreeing about the Holocaust. That was evil. There are certain things I believe that, and, I, and that's why I was mentioning, Doctor, about there are certain black and white in this world. There are certain good and evil. And trying to do the, the dance with it, I just think um, it, it could be hurtful to the overall cause. I mean, you, we couldn't agree on slavery, which is why we had the Civil War, because you can't play that dance. You can't say, well, I believe blacks should be enslaved. Well, I don't. Well, okay, well, we'll agree to disagree. No, that's that's not how it works all times. You can agree about apples and oranges or disagree, but I think there are certain things they uh, certain things do not allow for that. Yeah, I don't think we're saying uh, anything different, though. But at some point, I would agree that a decision has to be made. You, know, you, you at some point, there's got to be something that moves forward. But you know, the the part of what um, is always true is that people have a reason for what they believe. I don't have to agree with the reason they believe it. But it also could part of that reason be just that. evil. But could part of that reason just be evil? And I know in a secular society that's not kind of acceptable, but I think sometimes evil is the reason. Yeah, uh, and surely there are uh, lots of, of, of evil in the world. I will say sometimes the danger is that we like to pick a case. You know, we pick something that um, – because I, I don't hear really too many people um, having public discourse right now about slavery. You know, And so when, it's easy to go, well, what about that? And miss the fact that that in general life there are lots of things where we can hear each other and understand why we have a different different perspective, especially when we're talking about the general uh, arena of politics or anything else. And those are the places. Are there evil things and people doing evil things in the world? Absolutely. And we don't have to stand for that. But our general life doesn't put us into that. That piece, you know, our daily life and, and what really drives important people on their, you know, what, what is important in their life, those are the rarities. And if we can say, okay, those things are non-negotiables, then we probably uh, discluded about 1% of what we uh, talk about at any point. And then that leaves us a whole lot of other stuff where we can start learning from each other, um, again, not agreeing with the other person, but understanding how they might see it from that perspective. Well, you talk about in the book that change is inevitable. And I I have to put an analogy to this because I was watching the movie 1776 last night. It was on uh, TMC. Matter of fact, I actually saw it in Broadway when it was was a play. And um, I was watching the debate over slavery as they were – you know, writing the Declaration of Independence and listening to the arguments on it. And I understood what the founding fathers were thinking when they allowed Mm -hmm. that clause to be not placed in the Declaration. 
because they stated we will address this issue in the future. They knew it was going to come around. They knew change was possible. Change is necessary. Change is inevitable, which brought about the Civil War and the freedom of slaves and the great wealth our country has gained from that. Uh, but the, what you write about change, yes, but not your values. Your moral core, core values must remain steady. Yeah, I mean, change is the nature of the world. Um, and, and you're right. If you look at history, you can see the march of change. And and yet, in, the, in that same place, you can see that there are moral values that have been carried through. Now, you know, we, we can look back and, and say, well, look at what happened there. But generally, um, our moral cores as people, as individuals, stays pretty solid, as I've noticed, through through life. You know, what what we have... You know, by the time we hit adulthood is generally that moral core that we carry with us. We might have some nuances to it. We might have some things where we uh, have to – we've learned from listening. But our moral core, not necessarily how that's carried out, that usually doesn't change much. Some people realize that they have this moral core that has understood a different perspective and does change the viewpoint. But that doesn't change necessarily the moral core at all. Well, you know, you write about it as an immutable law, and yet we break that law when we do allow our morals to be corrupted, to be bent, and to be changed. And explain exactly what an immutable law is. Yeah, it's, it's always true. Um, that immutable law is always true. So it's, it's an immutable law that change is a constant in the world. We look around in our own lives. We, I'm growing older. That's change. I'm watching my kids grow up. That's change. The seasons change. Uh, you know, just take it to politics. There's change in politics, and, and there will be changes down the road. And, and so there are constantly we're trying to figure out where things need to, to uh, move towards. And so that's, that's the thing. Change is, is just something uh, that is unavoidable. The problem is that we as individuals often will say, I hate change, you know, but you can't fight it. The changes is there, so I put down four quarter, four categories of changes. There are the changes that we want and ex, and expect. You know, the the things where maybe you've been studying for a degree, you got the degree, you get a new job, you wanted that and you expected it. That's at one end. The other end is the one where you don't want it and either don't expect it or expect it either way, but you don't want it. And those are the ones what we push against, and yet they come our way anyway. Loved ones get sick. We get sick. People die. Um, those things happen. And so when we fight against it, we end up fighting against kind of – it's kind of like uh, you know, walking out into the ocean and the big waves coming in, and you're trying to fight back, and they keep on pushing you. And who's going to win? The waves are going to win because change happens. But what if you turn around and decide to you know, surf it in? You recognize the change is coming, and you figure out how to – to, to use that as a way of getting where you want to. That's a different way of approaching it. Well, not all change is good, too. So there are times we should push back against the change. Exactly. Well, not all change is good. Um, that is true. Uh, but that doesn't stop the change. Um, and so it depends on how you define you know, pushing back. There are some things I'm going to grow older. I can't stop that. Um, I can do the best I can to stay in shape, to eat better, you know, those other things to make sure that I can go as long as possible. But inevitably, I'm going to grow older. 
So all I can do is do the best I can as I move forward to, to allow myself to do the best I can through my life, to make the biggest impact in my life, to leave the world a better place. That's, that's the change that, you know, I, I've got to go with it. I'm going to get older. How do I deal with that in a way that's constructive and helpful? Well, when I talk about not all change is good, and there are times we must fight against and prevent the change, is, for example, changing our Constitution to take away our freedom of speech and freedom of religion or our Second Amendment right to bear arms. Those are changes that are not good. And those are changes that we should know that we, if changed, they will change our core moral values and how, how we stand as a nation. But when you dress it, you're dressing it as an individual in their life's pattern. But I... I when we say change again, not all change is good. Yeah, well, and and uh, you know, as you're probably aware, there is going to be another group that says, "Well, that is exactly the change that needs to happen." <laughs> and so, the, you know, the fact is that there is the push and shove of change, and and that's the nature of politics. What I'm addressing in this book, by and large, is how do we live our individual life. And if those things are important, you know, if you say, yes, these, these core values that you just noted are important, then what am I going to do as an individual to make sure that my voice is heard? Um, so that's, that's a, you know, the, the change is going to happen. What I don't say is how, what direction change will happen. We can't predict that. Uh, we can do what we can to direct it. So, for instance, back to my individual, um, I have friends who um, have said, well, I'm growing older. There's nothing I can do. I'll just eat what I want, do what I want, not exercise. That's one way of dealing with that. Mine is to eat well, exercise, take care of myself. And so the change is is in a certain direction, right? And so that's in an individual way. And if we look at that and say, hey, you know what? Cultural change is important to me. How do you get your voice out? That's a way that we can shape the, the change. But the fact is there will be change one way or the other. Well, your book is The Immutable Laws of Living, The Inspirational Blueprint to Living Your Meaningful Life. It's more on personal relationships, and I know I brought politics and everything into it, but that's what the show is usually about. And, exactly. you know, because the chat room is, is – because is, we have our friend Ron there goes, I'll keep my money, God, and guns so you can keep the change. Um, <laughs> there has been a very lively debate because, uh, like I said, the book is based on personal interrelationships. Not, I took it out onto the world stage, but I wanted to show that some of the things that you talk about in the book, if they, people who read it can see how it can be applied to the political and world states. Um, like I said, there are things that are changed. There are reasons for us to fight. Uh, so we can't always just sit down and chat and just walk away feeling like everything's a-okay. Uh, but you're also allow people to understand what we're facing so that we can better deal with it. Yeah, that's that's the hope. That's the hope. And then you know, in the end, we're all individuals trying to figure out how to move forward. So I do approach it from a, kind of an individual development because I do think thriving happens to each of us on an individual basis. And, and all of that does spill over to the uh, public arena for sure. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, people can find you uh, through the book's website, which is the immutable lawsofliving.com there's a link up on the show page so the people listening to the podcast can click on it and get your book and even chat with you if they ch should choose yeah in fact uh, if you're uh, li listening but you can't write that down just remember I need that book.com <laughs> excuse me 
excuse me. Now I got. I think Karen gave me the cough here. <laughs> but I want to thank you, Dr. Lee, for uh, joining us, and uh, we welcome you back to the show one day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Lee Bochum, check out his book, The Immutable Laws of Living. Uh, interesting uh, uh, concept, Karen. Yeah. No, I, I, I am always impressed with anyone that writes a book because, Lord knows, it's, it's not easy. And no. I am thankful for anybody that's trying to help, you know, people be better. Because that's what, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want. Yeah, and he, he talks about a lot of other things in the book about, you know, not stopping with failure. Uh, people can fail, but you can also pick yourself up and go forward. There's a lot of good information in there. You know, if people want to make their daily life better, it's a very, very good book. And I think a lot of this that's in here, if we sent it to the politicians, maybe we can probably get something done in Congress because at least they'll know where their op- op- opponent is coming from and finally mm-hmm. make certain things happen like <laughs> – Immigration reform, get that wall up. Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. <laughs> from a, yeah, from a um, position. Yeah, instead of, <laughs> you know, a high, intense, drama-filled position, you know, that things that we mean need like more safety. Like Maxie Waters? And, like Maxie oh Waters? <laughs> oh, gosh. I knew I was going to get your blood going. I know, and that's why I was, you know, just saying some things, some things we can agree on, and some things we can't agree on, and um, you know, well, I, I, well, I mean, Maxine Waters, how shameful of her to almost incite a riot. It's not wasn't. Oh her, no, she didn't do that. Day. Oh no, she didn't do that. Go in there. <laughs> Tell them they're not. Well, she would never. If someone said I'd do that to the illegal aliens, she'd be appalled. You would. She would treat someone who is an illegal alien better than she would treat a person working for our government. That tells you. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it does. But Karen, we're going to take a short break because I got to try to earn some money here. Uh, So we'll be back in just about two minutes. And here we go. Oh, i got to turn this down. If you follow me, you know, I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me, but I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? 
every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom, you just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my webpage. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. They offer four tiers for affiliates, from one case to 16 cases. I bought four cases to start, and boy, am I hooked on the water. Simply go to my webpage, click on the Earth Water link on the page, and join Team Earth Water. Go to Southern Sense and become a member of my site, and you'll also be entered to win the latest book offer if you become a member of my site. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Check it out. I know you'll be pleased. All right, and we're back, and we've got our next guest in on the line. And he actually fooled me. He switched phones on me. So I want to welcome Richard Sander. Good afternoon, Sander. sir. All welcome. right. You, like I said, you, yeah, I saw your phone number you? up there. And I said, oh, no, he dropped off. Uh, no, 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 he's here. He's here. <laughs> uh, you've got a new book okay, out, and please please don't drop it on your foot because it's a pretty thick book, and it's called Moving Towards Integration, The Past and Future of Fair Housing, which you wrote with, uh, I am not even going to try to pronounce this woman's name, Yana <laughs> Kovicia. Did I say that correctly? Kovicia and Jonathan Jonathan. That's See, I'm glad I have you. That's Your right. name is easy. Your name yeah, is easy. Yeah, that's why I did radio <laughs> that's work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's an interesting book. Uh, you have a lot of statistics in it, but I had some questions on it because uh, you deal uh, with the Civil Rights of the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And I happen to remember when that went into uh, enactment uh, because my parents at that point were selling their home. And we were highly aware of what was in that act, and the realtors made sure you knew about it. Uh, and my parents had taken a lot of flack because of some of the people they showed the house to. And we were a fairly integrated neighborhood, and we were surprised in where some of that flack was coming from when we showed it to like a handicapped couple and to a mixed uh, marriage couple. And we were living in an integrated neighborhood, and we were getting flack from that. So tell us about the Fair Housing Act and how it's affected us today. Sure. Well, that, that's a really interesting experience. Um, Fair Housing Act was aimed at housing discrimination. In other words, how people are treated when they're looking for housing. And it was focused on the private market because public housing had been addressed by some earlier laws. Um, it didn't directly do anything about housing segregation, which is how people are distributed within cities, um, You know, how many integrated neighborhoods versus segregated neighborhoods there are. But in terms of discrimination, it does seem to have had a pretty powerful effect. Um, there has been uh, a lot of speculation about it, and we were able to find for the book uh, pretty good uh, data on actual discrimination patterns in the 1960s and compare that with what happened in later decades. And we found that about two-thirds of the housing discrimination that existed when the law passed had uh, gone away by 1980. So that's a pretty big that's a pretty big improvement and uh, housing rates have continued to fall since then um, it's certainly has not disappeared as a problem but it's uh, it's become much less and 
In fact, housing discrimination rates now seem to be lower than than rates of other types of discrimination, say uh, when people are looking for jobs and so on. So that part of the act, I think, is, is a big success. Um, and why do you think we're more the, segregated today than we were back like 40 years ago? Well, on the whole, we're less segregated. So segregation is measured on, a, on something called an index of dissimilarity, uh, where you look at all the neighborhoods within a metropolitan area and see how differently blacks and whites are distributed. So the maximum index is 100. That would be apartheid, essentially. And zero is complete integration. So in the late 1960s, when the law was passed, the average index for blacks and whites across cities was 92, really close to the maximum. Uh, the average now is uh, about 72, 73, something like that. So, so there's improvement. It's not nearly the kind of improvement that we've seen in discrimination. But I think the really interesting story is that there are two paths. There are a group of cities where there's been almost no change, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, Milwaukee. Those cities are all almost as segregated as they were in the 1960s. And then you've got another group of cities where segregation has fallen pretty dramatically. So Seattle, San Antonio, San Diego, those are all areas where segregation is now in the high 50s or low 60s. So we've really got sort of two types of urban America now, one where segregation hasn't changed and one where it's changed a lot. Well, there's an interesting uh, debate going on. And humans are humans. They're going to try to move into areas where they feel most comfortable. So, for example, if you want to live, as my friend Kel says, if she wants to live amongst her tribe in a gated community, that's her right. So how are you talking about forced integration, or are you allowing people to choose where they want to be when they want to be? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think force uh, integration uh, programs are, are really misguided. Um, and, you know, you see among all ethnic groups some degree of self-segregation. Um, so Italian-Americans, Chinese-Americans, Jewish-Americans, they all ha- are not completely integrated. They have indices on the scale that, that are usually like in the 30s or low 40s. Um, what's unique with African-Americans is, is having segregation levels that are up in the, the 80s and, and, and high 70s. Um, that really is, is sort of a, different from what any ethnic group in America has experienced. And it, it seems to be associated with a lot of other bad outcomes. So that's the, that's the thing that, that um, seems important to address. And the good news, I think, in our findings is that um, you have this whole range of urban areas where it has pretty much spontaneously happened that integration has increased a lot. So there's no intrinsic reason. I mean, the people in San Diego don't seem to have different racial attitudes than the people in Chicago. So there's no intrinsic reason why Chicago cannot become nearly as integrated as San Diego. Um, the issue is kind of figuring out what are the mechanisms that drive segregation and how can you, um, how can you make policies sort of harmonize with, with lowering those levels. Well, you know, I, 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 well, as I was reading your book, uh, as I was reading your book, I'm thinking back to a lot of things that happened in the 60s because you came out with the Fair Housing Act, but simultaneously at the same time, you had Lyndon Johnson you know, institute his great experiment where we now have generational welfare. We now have um, uh, 
housing supplemental, you've got food stamps, you've got all these social programs, entitlement programs, where it's encouraging people not to go out there and increase their economic level, to stay home and just collect a check from Uncle Sam. So that could be another major reason why you're not seeing segregation, because you have an area of society that says, we'd rather have you on the public dole under our political thumb, which is why you don't see Chicago, which is highly uh, liberal city. You don't see New York, which is a highly liberal city. Well, you see San Diego, which is more of a rural area than an urban area. Is that part of your formula in your book? Well, the thing that drove integration in the 70s and 80s was um, was sort of the demographic mix in the city. And it doesn't seem – we haven't been able to find any connection between local urban policies and desegregation. It seems like uh, discrimination rates fell pretty much everywhere. If you compare a place like San Diego and Chicago, what really drove the difference was that San Diego was growing in the 70s and 80s and had a lot of black – migration from other parts of the country. And when blacks are arriving from somewhere else and they're arriving in a city where discriminations are, they sort of look at the whole metro area as a, as a possible place to live. And they're much more likely to end up in um, neighborhoods that are not only not black, but not really particularly close to black neighborhoods. And if you get a critical mass of those migrants, then that sort of changes the way people look at neighborhoods. Um, Blacks who are already in San Diego start saying, wow, there are all these neighborhoods uh, far away from the black district where a lot of blacks are living, so I should check those out as well. And whites start looking at the black neighborhoods in San Diego and saying, hmm, you know, those neighborhoods are becoming more diverse. Maybe I should consider moving there. And so you just get a uh, kind of this self-reinforcing dynamic of integration. Whereas in, in a place like Chicago, you had a lot of black mobility as discrimination levels fall, but it was mostly within the metro area, and it was mostly blacks moving to areas that were very close to existing black districts. So you had in those cities a lot of resegregation, a lot of neighborhoods where black entry would be followed by white departures and more black entry, and the neighborhood would eventually transition. So, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a question of kind of how is the how are the demographic dynamics of the metro area changing? And that's what fuels the integration. The, the other thing I want to follow up on what you said is, is this whole issue of welfare spending. Um, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that, that we, we spend a lot trying to address inequality through things like welfare and jobs programs and um, different types of sort of special efforts focused on inner city neighborhoods. Um, and, what we're finding in the book is that those are, are much less effective in reducing inequality than just the fact of housing integration. In other words, when areas like San Diego or, or Seattle become integrated, um, black outcomes start really converging with white outcomes. You see fewer people on welfare. You see much higher black employment, um, higher incomes, uh, better test scores in school. So that seems to be the thing that drives reduced inequality. Uh, much more than kind of direct social welfare spending. Karen, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I come at this kind of uniquely because in 2003, I was the first person to buy a home in an area called Holland Park in Dallas, Texas. So I, um, discrimination in housing 
is still real. And I think it's not being totally fully addressed because you still have white flight. You still have, which created all these goofy suburbs. And, I mean, that's the real thing. And then you have now gentrification, which is pushing people out of these traditional, you know, neighborhoods. But I think it's a bigger problem than what um, sometimes people address it as. I, I, discrimination is it's a tough thing, but I think most people would want to live in the best neighborhood, which gives them the best bang for their dollar like everybody else. So, um, no matter what, and sometimes that doesn't happen because you have realtors that don't show certain houses and certain areas to certain groups. And so, um, I mean, I'm wondering because a lot of the the census now um, tracks a lot of Hispanics as white, and I'm wondering if that is skewing the findings and making people think because a lot of Hispanics and blacks live in, you know, mutual neighborhoods, and if that's skewing the, you know, what the numbers are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think well, there's... Well, good question. Um, well, so I mean, I've lived it. So, so it's like it's one thing to ask the person, do you like the name Joe? It's another thing to ask Joe if he likes the name Joe, you know. So as a person who has lived it, it's not... Um, Pardon the pun, as black and white as I think people want to act like it is. There is, and it has a long way to go. And there is an issue with uh, mortgage lending, which is still not um, favorable to women. Matter of fact, I think they said the most discriminated group of mortgage lending are black women. We've got mm-hmm. some work to do. Still. Well, I, I, I agree with, with some of your points anyway. Um, so let me address them in turn. Um, we do distinguish between Hispanics and, and, and Anglos. So our, our data is not skewed by that. Um, and there is a whole, you know, more complicated story involving black and Hispanic integration. But what we're focusing on mostly in the book is black Anglo segregation integration. Um, the uh, discrimination rates uh, have not disappeared, but every measure that you can track really does show a lot of improvement. There, there's very good testing that's been done by uh, the Urban Institute. It's a, uh, one of the best think tanks in Washington, and they contract with fair housing groups around the country. And um, uh, they test discrimination not only on what happens when people respond to ads for apartments, but also on what neighborhoods do real estate agents show their customers, uh, there has been pretty good testing on banks and, and bank loan officers. Um, and those things all show some traces of discrimination. But the rate has been going down every decade, and it's, uh, it's really dramatically lower. And, you know, we find that it's similar discrimination rates in different parts of the country and clearly not inconsistent with very high integration in some of these cities that I mentioned. There's just... Uh, it's very hard to make a case that discrimination is driving things these days. Uh, there's, uh, there's also, um, you mentioned gentrification, and, and that's certainly, uh, um, you know, seen by a lot of fair housing folks as a, as a threat to uh, the stability of inner city neighborhoods. But 
but again, the national pattern for gentrification is is pretty positive. I mean, it has done a lot to increase the economic vitality of cities, which were often on the ropes 25 or 30 years ago. Um, and the amount of displacement from gentrified neighborhoods is usually lower than it is in neighborhoods that are that are not experiencing any gentrification. In other words, on the whole, a bigger threat to someone being displaced is neighborhood deterioration rather than gentrification. So there are neighborhoods where gentrification has been a problem, and we talk in the book about some strategies for stabilizing those housing markets. Um, but on the whole, I think it's been a positive force. Well, you know, I've, I've well, seen gentrification. Gent- a lot of homestead properties for, you know, for black families have moved them out of the district and moved them from homes that they've owned to now that they have to rent. And that has happened not just in, in my town of Dallas, Texas, but all across the country. So, Yes. I've seen it first half when it first came into being in the 80s, especially in the precinct I worked in in Brooklyn. And you would see these people coming, young white couples coming across the Williamsburg and the Brooklyn Bridge and buying up the burned out lofts and buildings that were sitting empty for decades since the riots of the 60s and 70s. They would buy them up and then property values rise as the property values rose and the people living in that neighborhood who were black and Hispanic were being forced out because they could no longer afford the property rents or the property taxes or anything like that. They were actually forced out right. as the property values rose. Yeah. So, you know, even though they were working in the neighborhoods, they couldn't even maintain the stores anymore because you'd have bistros going right. in where it was a small corner bodega. So gentrification does can hurt at the same time. Yeah. It can, but, and, and you know... Kind of, I, that's why I mean, Go ahead, sometimes Karen. the... Sometimes it seems like they're simple answers, but not always, you know. I wish they were, but not always. Well, I, th- I think there are pretty good answers, actually. The, you know, a, a big problem that uh, black homeowners faced in the 80s and early 90s was uh, was declining housing markets, and uh, they weren't benefiting from the housing appreciation that other people in housing markets were. That was one of the big contributors to a growing black-white wealth gap. Um, there are a lot of homeowners in these gentrifying neighborhoods, and those folks benefit a lot. I mean, they may in some cases end up selling their property because the property taxes are higher, but they're going to realize a lot of gain from the appreciation of their property if they're a homeowner. So I think the, the way to make gentrification is truly a win-win. But usually, well, well, well no, no, not let me just always. I, I, but I just, usually what so. happens is, is they were already in a depressed neighborhood buying a home that they could finally afford. Then that home value increases, and then, so they they are not usually getting top dollar because those ha- those properties have not usually been um, updated, upgraded to the to the new potential buyer that's going to come in. So they're still sold at a depressed amount from the full market value potential. Yeah. And then no, I, mean, I, I see this it's, exactly it's what happened. Yeah. So Karen, I've, I've seen that exactly happen. They would come in there, and, and as the property values increased, so did the property taxes. And so in order to pay the property taxes, they'd have to take out another mortgage on the home. Now they've got two mortgages on the home they no That's longer right. can afford. So they were actually being forced right. out, and the banks would then 
pick up the property because now you're defaulting on your mortgage or the city would put a lien on the property because of the back taxes that were, that were owed and then they would lose it to the city or or, or the bank. And they so go they and they push zero. code inspectors on these, on these home buyers or these homeowners keeping up with code enforcement that the, the new yuppie, buffy buyer wants done. Not saying that's a bad thing, but um, some of the code enforcements are aggressive. So they can come in and take the property. And then so exactly. it's not like they can go and take the little equity or even the large equity because then where do they go? Because that's usually the lowest property amount for that neighbor, for that whole city. So then it pushes them out of the city, and sometimes that's not feasible. So um, gentrification can have bad outcomes, but there are hundreds of thousands of homeowners who have really benefited a lot from it. And I think the key is to make those benefits broaden. So one thing is to provide a uh, housing counseling so that when folks are in a neighborhood that's starting to experience gentrification, they can get advice. How do you, if you're an owner, how do you strategize to get the top dollar if you eventually sell? How do you get financing to cover increased property taxes? If you're a renter, is there a way that you can become a homeowner now and get it on the ground floor? And if you're a renter and you can't do that, then um, in the book we suggest the idea of a housing trust, uh, which is a revolving revolving fund that buys properties in areas starting to go through gentrification, um, buys those properties and puts a restriction on the deed on how much the rent can go up, and then sells them back into the private market with that fee restriction. So you create a pool of housing that's protected from gentrification. So I think the, the moral is that the, the energy that gentrification represents is real positive, both for central cities and for integration and for minority residents. And what we want to do is try to engineer that so that the benefits accrue more to, uh, to both integration and to black and Hispanic residents. Right, Richard, now you're talking about having all these wonderful things, but who's going to run these programs? Is it going to be government or is it going to be private? Because we, the last thing we want is government to get their nose stuck in our private business again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that uh, I think these are all feasible private mechanisms. I mean, the the cost of the strategies that we talk about in the book is so small compared to kind of typical government interventions that they really are within reach of foundations. Uh, you know, a lot of cities have a sort of a community foundation that's focused on improving the city. Uh, this is the sort of thing that they could easily fund. Uh, you can imagine coalitions of local governments uh, kicking in some money to help, help make this happen. Um, it's important that there be a metropolitan perspective because what we learn is that integration really happens on a metropolitan level. You've got to be thinking about all the moving parts. Um, but the individual initiatives, I think, are, are very doable on a small scale. Are you talking about like an affirmative action program? Um, well, I'd say affirmative action in the sense that you're affirmatively trying to achieve integration. So, so let me give you another example of, of the sort of intervention we're talking about. As I said, Chicago is very segregated, but there's one part of Chicago that is quite integrated. There's the village of Oak Park, which is on the western border of Chicago. And Oak Park was uh, concerned about the possibility of the whole city going through resegregation. So they 
set up a, a housing counseling center where they would find out information about the private market and then provide free counseling to people who were looking to move. And they affirmatively tried to make sure that black home seekers knew about housing opportunities in white neighborhoods and that white home seekers knew about opportunities in black neighborhoods and so on. And what they did is they, they really tried to smooth the path so that people could kind of have in their heads a larger geography of, of opportunity, of places where they can move. And the result of that is that through voluntary moves, uh, Oak Park has become kind of the most integrated part of the Chicago metropolitan area. Um, it's not very expensive. It's, it's entirely voluntary. And you're sort of working with the market and helping the market function better. So you're looking at a free market solution and not a government solution, are you saying? That's right. I mean, I, I, it's not to say the government doesn't have a role, but I think that um, what we're finding is that, that the market itself can produce integration, and you want to sort of try to um, uh, engineer things at the margins to help that come about. So you're taking advantage of the power of the markets. It's interesting because um, my husband and I, he had a home inspecting business. And one of the things we did, we volunteered for, is that our county had a uh, nonprofit organization that worked in here. And they would bring in potential home buyers, uh, people that looking to own their first home, in, and they would walk them through the mortgage process, uh, your, uh, your credit uh, report process, uh, that and then when we would come in and tell them what their responsibilities were and what to look for when they do buy a home, you know, now you're not going to have a landlord that's going to come over and to fix your, your water line for you. You're going to have to know how to do that yourself or find someone. So these are things we helped people do. And they made a lot of people of it was it was an integrated uh, program. So we saw people from all different types of backgrounds and it was a good program. Why don't we just do something simple like that rather than get more government intervention? Well, I think that's very similar to what I'm talking about. You know, that sounds a lot like the Oak Park program and, and what we're talking about with gentrification. You know, you figure out ways to help people help themselves. Um, uh, you're sort of taking someone's basic interest in becoming a homeowner and helping to make that process work, right? Um, so, yes, I think the idea is, is to sort of think through what are 10 very small initiatives individually that could each help people sort of become more empowered and try to structure them so in the aggregate they're helping to foster integration. That's, that's kind of the way that we're thinking about it. Well, now I'm going to yeah. ask Karen no, I, this one. Karen, Karen yeah. Watson is, is my, co- my co-host today. Um, and Karen, I, I, I think what he's looking at is just not complete the whole problem because, we, again, we have the systematic – uh, system of the welfare and the entitlement programs that make people just not want to rise up and they'd rather stay in their neighborhoods. You know, you get the, the calls of Uncle Tom, how dare you uh, decide that you're going to be better than me and go out into a, that white neighborhood and buy the house. You've, you've seen it, right. you've lived it. Um, and also, it's also yes. a situation of the public education system, which is not educating our kids today in such a level where they can go out and get a good paying job where they can look forward to finally owning a house. Most of these kids today, uh, what is the uh, graduation rate in some of these schools? 
75 percent? percent The kids are not even able to read and write. So I think it's a multifaceted yeah. thing where we can't look at just as you're looking in your book of statistics. We have to look at what has caused this, what has made it where people right. no longer want to rise up again. Right. And when people are receiving so much an entitlement, then it also disincentivizes them to even want to be homeless, you know? And so we have to we have to look at that aspect of it as well. That, you know, mm-hmm. if you're making more money by not going to work than you do by going to work, well, you know, you're not going to go to work. Yeah, you know, and, why and, am I going to... Why am I going to buy a house and be responsible for the mortgage payment and mowing the lawn and everything else when I can have a landlord and the government's handing me Section 8 housing? All I have to do is pick up the phone yeah. and say, hey, I got a broken window and my faucet isn't working. I can sit back and let Uncle Sam pay me. Hey, and I laugh all the way. What is incentivizing people to, to raise themselves out of these ghettos and to go into an integrated society? Well, if you had a, re- a reasonable amount of promotion for, for black, the black community. You're fading out, Karen. Those, oh. Karen, you're fading out. Can, okay, I need to walk to a different place. So sorry. But um, a lot of the homeownership will increase when um, when unemployment increases for those communities. And finally, now that home home ownership or unemployment is increasing, it's kind of their go in tandem. So uh, thankfully for the policies of President Trump, black unemployment rates are the lowest they've been in a very long time. So I'm suspecting that that will also increase home ownership uh, rates as well. But there is still a lot of discrimination. And... um, just unfortunate, but I think the discrimination part of it is not so much as what bothers. It's the uh, it's the poor schools, it's the uh, unemployment. Those are the things that hurt the most. Richard, so I think um, yeah, uh, the problems are complex, of course, uh, and you know there are there's a lot of debate about the effect of of different government programs and which ones are helping more than they hurt and which ones are hurting more than they help. Um, but what seems really clear from the evidence is that housing integration, uh, when it comes about, has a positive effect on all these things. It narrows the unemployment gap between blacks and whites. It really produces much more meaningful school integration. And so you see black test scores rising in all the, in all the cities that have had significant integration. It increases the black home ownership rate so that, you know, when the market changes, African-Americans can benefit from that. So it's the one thing that really seems to tie a lot of these other strands together. And, you know, if that happens, then it, that helps to break the cycle of dependency. So it just seems to, to me that, and to my co-authors that this is a sort of a no-brainer that has been overlooked. And uh, we can do a lot more to indirectly get at many of these other problems by by trying to address segregation. 
Well, you know, I've got to ask you also from the political side, because you do have politicians that deliberately keep certain neighborhoods segregated so they can get those votes, knowing that they can get more votes if they have people that are dependent upon government welfare programs. And the more they promise them in entitlement programs, the more votes they'll get and the more segregated the neighborhood be. So what's your answer to something like that? Well, I think you're right. I think one of the reasons that that there isn't more African-American discussion about integration is that many political leaders see it as, as, as segregation as being in their interest. Um, so that's something that, that I think we need to, you know, call out and, and challenge. Um, we, again, when you, when you do get a reasonable amount of housing integration, political scientists have found that uh, the politics in these cities become much less racially polarized, which sort of makes sense. Um, uh, people see issues less framed in terms of race and see it more in terms of other aspects of their lives. Um, and so you get, you get a lot more governing consensus. Um, so that's another example of kind of a feedback mechanism where once you've got a certain amount of integration going, then these other positive things start flowing from it and, and reinforce the trends. Yeah, because you had the well, trend also of graphic. a single parent family. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, and certain of the demographics are changing for these politicians, and we mentioned Maxine Waters. Her district used to be majority black, but it's not anymore, which I think is why she's looking so much for relevancy, because her district right now is majority Hispanic. And um, so she's, you know, having to use other cards to stay in office. Yeah, it's happening not just for our district, but a whole bunch of other districts. That's right. A, a majority of African Americans in Congress now represent neighborhoods that are that are mostly non-black. So mm-hmm. the demographics are changing enough to sort Technically, of Technically, many of them aren't representing black <laughs> blacks well anyway. So that's not a big uh, <laughs> big loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's another, you know, it's another factor that makes the situation more dynamic, and I think makes us optimistic that uh, that you know politics can be pushed in a more constructive direction. Well, it brings me back then again to human behavior, uh, because we are giving an excuse for bad behavior on individuals instead of having them take personal responsibility. So, getting off the welfare and getting a job making sure that if you're going to be in a relationship and have a kid, if both parents are there in the household to raise the child, because single-parent households are going to be ones that you're addressing as being segregated neighborhoods more often. Lack of proper education, the parent not being involved in the education, or the community not caring enough about the education system to make sure these kids can read and write when they graduate high school, or even if they graduate high school. There's so many moving pieces to this that, you know, when you look at the statistics, She's put in here, it's all right, fine and well, but when you plug in all the other moving parts, it comes down to human responsibility, doesn't it, in the end? Well, it does, but you know, there the question I think is is how do you how do you try to change society in a way that has a positive effect on, on human responsibility? And maybe, you know, you might argue, well, the best way to do that is to slash some of the programs that are helping create this dependency. And maybe that's true. But but apart from that, it's pretty clear that an integration has a really positive effect. In segregated cities, you have a lot of African Americans living in neighborhoods where more than half the population is below the poverty line. 
And when that's the case, you know, the role models that, that people are growing up around, the schools that they're going to, are all going to be really heavily influenced by that. Um, in the low segregation cities, most blacks are, are living in areas with dramatically lower poverty rates. And they have a lot of role models nearby. There are going to be neighbors who have gone to college. Uh, school integration is just much more meaningful when it's set in the context of housing integration. So the culture changes, and that's a way of sort of changing people's perception of responsibilities and what their life path is going to look like and you know, what they should work for. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of moving parts, and Karen, I think you agree with me, because when you have it where kids are not graduating or if they do graduate, they don't have the proper education, and then they fall into poor role models like gangs, MS-13, and things like that, where you know there is no incentive to integrate. Am I looking this wrong, Karen? Because you've been on the other side. Did I lose Karen? Karen, are you still with me? I think I lost my co-host. <laughs> All right. Well, well I'm still here. <laughs> well, because I, I, I hope that she walks back to the right part of the room, Karen, with your phone so you can talk to us again. Uh, but th- I, this is another problem we're looking at. You know, you also have the law enforcement end of it where, you know, you can't respond uh, to situations where, you know, you have a high, high homicide rate like in Chicago. You don't have enough police officers to, to respond. Or when they do respond, there's people in the neighborhood that just won't talk to them. So you, you, there's many, mm-hmm. many moving parts here. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and, and they're all interlinked. It makes it hard for us. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess my big contribution here is that housing segregation is linked to all those things and lower segregation pushes all of them in the right direction. I mean, take law enforcement. Uh, African-American crime rates are, are substantially lower in cities with, uh, with more integration. Um, so, you know, it's leading people to make life choices that bypass the criminal justice system. It's probably also leading the police to, uh, to not stereotype uh, uh, blacks in, in the way that they might in a really segregated neighborhood. So it's having these positive effects that build on each other. Um, now, what do you mean by, by police? What do you, Richard, what do you mean by police stereotyping? Because you got to remember, I'm a retired New York City police officer, and that was during the time where we did stop, question, and frisk. And if we stopped, question, and frisk someone without a reason, we could go to jail. You had to have a specific mm-hmm. reason which to stop the person. And you had to articulate it. And if you failed to articulate it, not only would you lose your job, you would end up in a jail cell. That was something that worked. It wasn't stereotyping, but you looked for certain behaviors. So this is a misnomer. And I would say 99% of the cops out there are doing a damn good job. You may have 1%. Matter of fact, in NYPD, it was less than 0.2% that were bad. Well, that's that's great to hear. Um I think, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of concern about racial profiling by the police, and maybe it, it, it's more common in departments that don't have really thoroughly, thoroughly professional training. Um, Chicago police, I think, don't have as good a reputation as the NYPD for avoiding that. But but regardless, if you have a more integrated city, then, then it's much less likely that, that anyone's going to engage in racial profiling because – those those correlations and connections are just much weaker. 
and it becomes more kind of automatic to to rely more on individual circumstances when you're making judgments about people. Well, I, I think a lot of it is actually uh, the news media, which improperly reports things or tilts it in a slant, uh, which would aid these misnomers. It's also polit- politicians that use it to their advantage. It's also with organizations that would rather increase the flames of public strife. So if you look at a lot of different social economic things that are going on, you can understand why certain neighborhoods would not want to integrate. Uh, they would rather band together us versus them attitude. I think we can change society's attitude and stop looking at it and glossing it over and saying, well, if we do this nice touchy-feely program, no, let's get down to the fact. Let's get down to the root and call people out. Because if you have the Al Sharptons out there, and I've met the right Reverend Al. Uh, he's been in the jail, so I've watched him. Uh, he's been protesting in the precinct. I mean, trust me, I know the right Reverend Al. And all he does is he flames the, the distrust. He flames the hatred. And then if you group together in a neighborhood, you feel like you are protected with each other. There's a lot of moving parts to desegregating our nation. And if you think, I think it's better if we uphold our laws, uphold the Constitution, we can go a lot further than with good touchy-feely programs. Let's, let's abandon the federal education system ever since it went into effect in 1972. Our scores have decreased. Let's bring back the education system to the local neighborhoods. Let the local parents be responsible for their kids' education. Give them a choice because charter schools and uh, uh, religious-centered schools have a higher graduation rate, have a higher, better entrance into college, and are better off economically once they graduate. There's so many moving parts that I, I, I don't think touchy-feely programs will solve it. Well, I mean, and they haven't. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. They haven't solved it. What solves a lot of the ills are you know, truth be known, within the family. So the government cannot do what the family refuses to do. I'm sorry, well, Richard, that was a rant, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, touchy-feely is sort of a, kind of a broad pejorative term. I mean, there's certainly some things that have worked and some things that have been disastrous. But uh, I, I'm, I'm all for more personal responsibility. I'm all for stronger families. You know, I think all the values you're talking about are things that, that resonate with me and probably most of your listeners. But we've got this basic fact, which is that we have a group of urban areas in America where racial inequality is steadily going down. It's gradually disappearing. And we ought to look and say, is something happening there that we can uh, help spread, not through any kind of authoritarian paternalistic program, but by sort of looking at how can we smartly engineer the way the markets are working in these other areas to try to foster the housing integration we see in these in these original cities. I mean, that just seems like, um, you know, money on the table that it makes sense to... It's, uh, it, it's, it's a rocket science. Um, it's, a, it's sort of a common-sense approach to saying... Let's see if we can make some of the urban areas that are having a terrible time just function better. 
Well, there's a, like I said, a lot of moving parts to this, and uh, <clears throat> I don't think there's any one answer to it. But I think what I'm, what you may be seeing with the rise of social media, with the rise of kids now having access to it, uh, society is going to naturally integrate. It's going to happen naturally. I don't, I don't think we need, like I said, government to be involved. What we need to do is get government out of the way. Let's let's just let government go completely out of the way and let society um, change in its own natural pattern. Well, you know, because we kind of moving. <laughs> That's the whole thing. People people usually go where they feel comfortable, and they go where they feel safe. So, the reason people leave the ghetto because they usually do not feel comfortable in the ghetto, and they usually don't feel safe. Well, it's two simple reasons. If, um, you know, because people can always move, and when their their income gets better, they usually do. Well, Richard? Yeah. Well, we've had 50 years since the Fair Housing Act, and, uh, you have some cities where integration has happened at 10 times the rate of other cities. Um, and we don't see, you know, the racial attitudes of people being different across those cities. We don't see racial discrimination levels being different across those cities. What we do see is that there's a different demographic chemistry in the cities that have integrated. And we see dramatic gains for African-Americans in those cities. So, you know, to me, it's self-evident what the conclusion of that is, that if we can help make those demographic conditions exist in the very segregated cities, that's a sensible policy course. I don't think that something's automatically uh, uh, an idea that should be dismissed or not considered just because it involves some kind of planning and some kind of thinking about the aggregate data. I think, you know, just like we we want to be smart when we innovate in the business world, we want to be smart when we innovate in the policy world. And research is relevant. Looking at patterns is relevant. So that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I, I agree with you that we should have some sort of a program, but it should be on the community level, uh, like the program that you had suggested in your book, on the community level. Let the people in the community decide how they want to mold their community. Because you are going to have groups that will live in enclaves anyway. You have in New York State side by, not exactly side by side, but in the same area in upstate New York, you have one area of, you have Hasidic Jews. And then you go several miles down the road, you have another area of Muslims. And they are gated, closed communities. And they choose it that way. So you can't force integration. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing affirmative action does not work. As a matter of fact, it has the opposite effect of continued discrimination. Not only it's the opposite discrimination at this point. So, you know, if we bring it back to let the local communities determine how they want their neighborhoods to voluntarily look, we may see changes and differences. But we've got to get the politics out of it. And that leads with politicians such as the right Reverend Al uh, to get his nose out of it and stop making money off the backs of these poor people. Yeah, well, I think we agree with a lot of that. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's important to keep in mind that, that Jews and Muslims are much, much less segregated than African Americans are. So there are neighborhoods you can point to and say that's a Jewish or a Muslim community, 
But there's much more dispersion of those populations around neighborhoods generally. Okay, but wait a minute. I I have to interject. When you use certain communities that stay together for religious reasons, that's different. A lot of Jews um, who are very connected to their temple and they do not walk on the, uh, don't drive on the Sabbath, need to be close to that. So there is a reason for certain uh, levels of closeness that, you know, at my church, I don't have to, there are people who go to my church from 30 miles, 40 miles away. That's not, that's not feasible for an Orthodox Jew. So there, there, there are reasons for a lot of those things. And yeah, I'll, and I'll tell you, I've right. walked the footpost in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I'm telling you, if they had someone that was not his feet to move into the neighborhood, they made them feel very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> Trust me, I've watched it. Yeah, but that, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. In New York City, the, you know, you have these much stronger patterns of of exclusion, um, and getting a certain level of integration is key to breaking down those patterns. Well, it becomes like a gang mentality. You know, you're in a neighborhood of like-minded individuals and you feel protected. Right. Yeah. So there's a tendency to fall back into that. But but again, you know, once you once you break down segregation levels below a certain threshold, then people lose that fear. Well, Richard, it has been a very, very interesting conversation and I hope you enjoyed speaking with us. Uh, I did enjoy your book. It's, it's, I tried not to drop it on my foot because that must be a large tome. Um, but I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a fun conversation, so thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. Uh, check out Richard Sandler and the name of his book, which you can get up on Amazon. And, Richard, I want to let you know there's a link to your book on the show page. So when people are listening to the podcast later on, they can click on it and go straight to Amazon and get your book there. Oh, terrific. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the author is Richard Sandy. He's a professor out of Harvard, and the book is Moving Toward Integra- Integration, the Future of Housing. Uh, Karen, it was interesting. It was interesting. And I, uh, you know, it was interesting. I wish the world worked a little like that sometimes. <laughs> There's theory and reality, and not all the time, but sometimes they're different. No, there is there is theory and reality. Uh, but Karen, um, I want to thank you for sitting in for Curtis. And some people were wondering whether or not I fired Curtis. No, I didn't. <laughs> Curtis has been on a book signing tour, and he's over at the Florida GOP. I, I don't know what they call it there, that whatever meeting they have of all the minds that everyone's seeing on TV. So he's in the heart of that. So we're going to have some interesting stories from him when he comes back next week. Um, but we have Robert Starnes is joining us on next Tuesday. Uh, he's got a book out, Diplomats and Dictators. Uh, he was a former um, department, what was the heck was he called? Uh, he, he was a foreign service. DSS was the department he worked for. Uh, and he's a really, really interesting book. I've started reading that. Uh, he'll be joining us. And along with Sam Faddis, uh, Sam Faddis has a new magazine out called, uh, which he's looking to put into a building now. It's online at this moment. Uh, that's followed by, on Friday, my buddy Trevor Loudon's joining us with Valerie Greenfield. 
So we got some exciting guests coming up next week, Karen. So I hope you can uh, pop in and join us. And by the way, Karen, several people in the chat room wanted you to join them there. <laughs> they wanted to have fun with you in the chat room. Well, that's perfect. I, I appreciate that. Sorry, I was having such a a coughing spell with my allergies, but I'm glad we worked through it. <laughs> well, I've been sipping on my earth water, so if people see me sipping on my little sipping cup. That's not Coke. It's not iced tea. That's <laughs> earth water in there. <laughs> okay. Oh man! Well, it's been an I honor to go- for Curtis. Oh, like I said, he'll be back, and I hope you join us again. And also join into the chat room, because I've been having the chat up there um, with Gary saying that in YouTube, he was only hearing me and not you or Karen. Holy cow. And I've been chatting away, and YouTube has got nothing. I don't know what's going on with YouTube. Sorry about that, guys. But, Karen, people can find you at GOP Buzz. Did I get that correct this time? Yeah, GOPBuzz.com. They can definitely connect with me there. And you're up on uh, uh, Facebook and on Twitter. I, I am on Facebook, show yeah. out. Up on Twitter, yeah, too. Yeah, that would be great. I made sure I included you on Twitter, yeah. So anything new coming up with you? Well, I had a wonderful time in California last week, and California is doing a lot of great things. They have a Republican on the ballot. Yay. They may, with a lot of hard work, and I think they're up to doing it, Uh, be able to have a Republican governor. And, yes, that is possible for California to have a Republican governor. So everyone that uh, knows anybody in California that's conservative, make sure they go to the polls and vote. Yeah, and also go out, if there's anyone in the district that has uh, uh, Maxine Waters out there, just uh, tell them to vote for Omar Navarro. (laughs) Yes. Get, yes. get Maxine out of there. Get her out of there. Um, yes. We're down to our last few minutes on the show, and uh, that, that's all I've got for now, outside of telling people uh, to uh, keep tuned for um, what Trump is going to do on replacing Kennedy. And I think he's going to put something up real fast. And a lot of people, I forget the name of this woman. She's got seven kids. She's already been vetted by the House, not the House, the Senate, for a district judgeship, so she should be able to sail through. But if I remember correctly, I think it was Pelosi that went after her uh, because she's a Roman Catholic. It's, you know, it's hey, you complained, you know, wow. that we went after Ted Kennedy because he was a Roman, not Ted Kennedy, or uh, John Kennedy because he was a Roman Catholic. Our question was, well, I was born Roman Catholic, and I remember all the debates going on back then, whether or not he would answer to the Pope or to the American people, and he answered it by answering to the American people. And I think she's going to say the same thing. So we'll see what's going to happen. Wow. It's very, very interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. And happy 4th of yep. July to everybody. I know some people are going to start their 4th of July celebrations this weekend. So have a safe one. And we live in the greatest country in the whole world. So don't forget it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And happy birthday, Mom. This is her birthday, 4th of July. So, guys out there, just be careful, but enjoy the holiday and spread the message of what America stands for. I watched the movie last night of 1776, and I did see it at the Majestic Theater in Broadway. I think it was 72 I saw it back then. Boy, am I dating myself. <laughs> but if you can get the movie rented, guys, 
it's a, it's yes, it is a musical, but it also gives you a background of what our founders were thinking when they were going through the debates, creating that precious document, the Declaration of Independence, and what a history was sent forward. Holy moly. Did you know the last person to vote yes for going forward with the Declaration of Independence was a little-known judge by the name of Wilson. He went out later on to become a Supreme Court judge. He was the last one who voted yes, and the reason he said, I don't want to be known in history for the one that stopped this nation from being built. Very interesting story. I leave that thought with everyone, and as I close out, I'm leaving you with my closing song, When the Roll is Heard Up Yonder. When the roll is called up, Yana. Until then, I say good night, God bless, and happy fourth. And thank you, Karen, for joining us. <laughs>